I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Hey, it's Joe here, and every morning before I crack open a book or sit down to do some writing, the first thing I do is brew an amazing cup of Alpha Coffee. They make premium 100% Arabica coffee, and Alpha has some of my favorite blends. They have Dawn Patrol, which is a nice medium light breakfast blend. I also enjoy Charlie Don't Surf, which is a medium Kona blend. And I even get to take Alpha Coffee to work with me because they also make K-Cups. Not only do they have great coffee... They're a great veteran-owned business who has shipped over 20,000 bags of coffee to deploy troops. They also offer a 10% discount to members of the military and first responders. And Alpha Coffee has been an awesome company to partner with at From the Green Notebook. So taste the Alpha difference and purchase their coffee today at www.alpha.coffee or via Amazon Prime. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the Green Notebook of Canadian astronaut and author Chris Hatfield. Now, one of my favorite books that I read last year was An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth by Hatfield. As you will quickly learn in this interview, Chris's journey to becoming an astronaut and the lessons he learned while in space have so much application to all of us here on Earth. And I was actually surprised at the number of parallels I found in the book between Chris's life as an astronaut and mine as a soldier. So in this episode, we're going to cover so much. We're going to cover everything from the importance of the small decisions we make every day to goal setting, to managing the tension between our professional careers and our family lives. Chris is also going to talk about how he's transitioned from being an astronaut to author and what he's learned about himself in writing his latest book, a work of fiction, The Apollo Murders, which by the way, is an awesome book. And I cannot think of a better guest to kick off 2022 than Chris. So please welcome to the show, Chris Hatfield. Hey, thanks very much, Joe. I'm really happy to be talking with you today. I'm really excited too. I just, to give you a glimpse of or an assessment of how your book has affected me, I just picked up an astronaut's guide to life on Earth last week, and I finished it. <laughs> wow, that, that's, that's, a good, that's a good sign where you feel compelled to read the whole book. That's great. I, I flew through it so quickly, and I didn't realize how much we had in common being a soldier and you being an astronaut. So I'm really looking forward to diving into that today. And to start off, you know, in your book, you say that you weren't destined to be an astronaut, that you had to turn yourself into one. And so how did that mindset help you achieve your goal and, and how can it help us achieve ours? Yeah, I think uh, fairly recently there was a NASA astronaut recruitment and they put those, you know, five men and five women, the pictures up and everybody looks at them and go, hey, cool, new astronauts. Well, their average age was 37 and every single one of them was absolute top in their field and probably not just their field, but far outstripping anything I'd done by that age, just so multifaceted and multi-talented. And the reason that NASA looks for folks like that, or all the space agencies do, is because of the unpredictable extremes of things they may ask you to do during your career. So they're trying to look for people who have as much breadth and depth as possible. And none of them were born with breadth or depth. And so if you want to do something unusual in your life, unless you're born with some wild God-given talent, you know, if you're Michelangelo or... I don't know, one of the Olympic sprinters or something, obviously it's going to still take a lot of work. But if you're just trying to set your sights on something that right now you don't know how to do, then you are going to have to deliberately turn yourself into that person. And it's incremental. And when I was a kid looking at the, the early astronauts and, and the race to the moon, I thought, wow, how did those 
guys, you know, specifically, I was looking at the, the first crew to walk on the moon. So Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and then Mike Collins, who was orbiting. I was thinking, how did those three people get themselves into a position to be there? It sure wasn't random. It wasn't some lottery. They didn't buy their way in. And so it gave me a really clear sense of purpose that if I ever wanted to do something like that, I was going to have to change who I was. And I was only 10. And even then I recognized the thing that you have the greatest dominion over, the thing that you can, the only thing you can really truly control is yourself. And you get to choose, you know, what you eat, what you read, how much exercise you get to a huge degree. You have a lot of choice of how you're going to turn yourself into something. And it's wonderful to have something like that, where someone gives you a long-term vision of what might just be possible in your life. And then that helps you make all those little short-term decisions to try and slowly, you know, whittle yourself down or, or, uh, or build yourself up into a position where you've turned yourself into, into something that otherwise you never would have been. That's a really great point you make about it's the small minor decisions that we make every single day that eventually get you closer and closer to that goal. A lot of people are like, oh, it's awesome you have this podcast because they didn't see the last eight years of, you know, the horrible writing in the beginning, slowly getting better at it, slowly building the website to a point where it was big enough to where a podcast made sense. But it was like turning myself into somebody that could do this versus just becoming a podcaster, becoming a blogger, becoming a writer, becoming a reader. Like it's, it's that slow incremental process. And I love, I love that you say that. And it's, I think it's important for, I don't know how much people normally think about it in that you are not who you set out to be. You know, you can join a fitness club or you can, uh, you know, join a book of the month club, or you can buy a new set of running shoes or something like that. But the only way that you're actually going to change yourself is through the small decisions in your life. What do you choose to do next? That's the only thing that really matters. Your life is not what you set out to do. Your life is absolutely purely the sum total of all of the little things that you chose to do next. So it's good to have those long-term goals to help you choose what to do next. But it's also, I think, good to be mindful of the fact, just like you've been to create what you got going on right now, that all of those little decisions can have a measurable, visible change in who you are. And that's actually going to be the story of your life. You're talking about investing in yourself. And again, we talked a little bit before the interview, but I, I didn't really know much about astronauts or space programs before picking up your book. And so in reading your book, I could see that there was a developmental path that's kind of laid out for you, you know, as part of being an astronaut that you have to hit these gates but there's also a self-development component, correct, that, that you had to do, make those decisions. Yeah. And it's a little different for me because I'm Canadian. And uh, when I decided to be an astronaut, it wasn't hard. It was impossible. There were no Canadian astronauts. There was no Canadian space agency. Canada didn't have rockets. I mean, there was no way from A to B. I even recognized then the only thing that I can really count on is that things are going to change. And so let's start changing myself and see what the future, you know, un unleashes on us all. And fortunately, as I gained skills and, you know, kept myself in shape and did all those things over the years, you know, you said your gates you got to get through. But, man, I was inventing a lot of those gates. But fortunately, uh, Canada formed a space agency and then hired astronauts. And, and I got selected as one of those. But it sure wasn't accidental. It was lucky. But it was the direct product of having set myself up to be in a position to be that person that, that might be able to do that thing if the opportunity ever arose. As you look back on that path that got you into space and you look back on all the things that you did, would you say that you have you valued education or you valued achievement more? Because you know, I, I think a lot of times we get achievement focused and just focus on doing those things and not really focused on like what we're learning in the moment. Achievement is so transient, right? You've, you've had several moments of achievement where you've got externally recognized. You know, you, you went from major to, uh, to light colonel or whatever. You got one more medal to put on your chest or, or it was graduation day and you walked across the stage and somebody handed you something. A lot of people see those as achievements. 
and it's nice, you know, it's good to celebrate the end of something, but that's, that's just this tiny little indicator of the actual work that went into it. And to me, the way more interesting part, and that is, what did you learn along the way? And how did that change who you are? So that the person walking across the stage or, or standing there getting something pinned on them is not the same person that they would have been earlier in their life. And I think that's how I value things. It's the process of it, the educational learning process of life that I find fascinating and challenging and rewarding. And then once in a while, somebody externally to you goes, hey, you did a cool thing. Let me give you this or let me tell other people what a good person you are. Those are nice. But boy, those should be secondary or tertiary to your actual motivations for doing things in life. You know, you should be deliberately loving the process of improving and gaining more skills and educating yourself. And one other thing, Joe, whenever anybody ever offered in my whole life to teach me something for free, I took them up on it. If you're willing to take the time to teach me something for free, man, I'm all ears. Teach me. And that's really served me well also throughout life. I love it because I am I asked you, I said, Chris, can you come teach me for an hour? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's exactly what's happening right now. The other thing I was thinking about too, when you were talking about achievement is uh, I read a book about this rugby captain, Sean Fitzpatrick from New Zealand. And uh, he said he didn't want to spend his life walking backwards into the future. You know, I, I've thought about that too for myself. And I, I think a lot of times like we'll, we'll get hold up or we'll hold on to like some achievement. We'll let that feeling linger just a little bit too long and we'll forget the process that got us there in the first place. And so I know for me, I, you know, when I, I achieve something, I, I celebrate it in the moment, but then I try to, you know, what can I learn from that experience and then start moving out onto the, to the next one? Have you found that approach being the same for you as well? Yeah, I, I used to play rugby, although not nearly at the level that Sean Fitzpatrick did. But um, I've kind of viewed achievement as it's sort of like just building a platform underneath yourself, like one of those big uh, Aztec or Inca pyramids, those big, broad, flat ones. Right. But with every layer of stone or every new uh, achievement of layering, all you've really done is put yourself in a higher and more capable position to be able to see further. And so it's nice to have accolades and, you know, stuff, but given a very short period of time, they will only matter to you. And so the only thing that really has lasting power is how did they change you to be able to execute the rest of your life in a better way? And if you're holding, I mean, there are people that hold on to high school as the pinnacle of their life and okay, that's all right. But gosh, there, there is so much more opportunity to learn things and, and to continue to change who you are. And so I always am looking to try and get more dirt underneath my heels to be able to see a little further and a little more clearly into the opportunities that are that are still out there. Wow, that was well put. And I could I could just sit here with in this part of the conversation forever. And then people would get mad at me that I interviewed an astronaut and didn't even ask him about what the life of an astronaut is like. So I understand, you know, before I reading your book, like I understood the space part. But the thing I didn't understand is like what goes into that and actually like how long that process takes for you to get into space. And even if there, there might not even be a chance that you go to space. And so I would love to hear your take on, you know, what the, the life or share of what the life of an astronaut is like. Sure. Just as a quick snapshot, I served as an astronaut for 21 years and I was in space for six months. So just simple math, that meant I spent 20 and a half years as an astronaut on Earth. And so I was probably doing something. I think a lot of people have this, they sort of equate it to an airline flight or something where you've bought it, got a ticket, you go sit in the waiting room and then you go. And we as astronauts are a big part in helping to invent spaceflight. It doesn't happen magically. It's a huge number of people working together to try and do something that nobody's ever done before. And there are so many little problems to solve and so many things to work out. Here's a small example from my second space flight. It was on Space Shuttle Endeavor, going to go help build the International Space Station. I was designated as the chief spacewalker four years before the flight launched, you know, one entire university degree's worth of time. And I spent that four years in amongst all the other jobs I was doing, inventing how we were going to execute those spacewalks, because it's something nobody had ever done, that, that type of work. I actually had to go to the full-scale model makers 
to specify how we were going to build the mock-ups, the great big mock-ups, so that we could put them in the underwater training pool so that they would have all of the necessary degrees of freedom so that then we could practice and try all the different failure modes and really wring everything out so that when we got to orbit, where you often just get one chance, that it optimized our abilities. So that's sort of an example of preparing for a specific flight. But a large part of your life otherwise is supporting space flight in general, enabling other flights to succeed. I spent five years in mission control as NASA's chief Capcom, talking to crews. I supported 25 shuttle flights in a row where I worked every single flight. And I was like their crew member on the ground. I learned a huge amount doing that. I was NASA's director of operations in Russia for a few years. You know, here I am a little Canadian kid who used to, as a military fighter pilot in the Cold War, used to intercept Soviet bombers as they were practicing cruise missile launches on North America. And now I'm NASA's director of operations in Russia, living in Russia, learning to speak Russian, helping the two countries that obviously have lots to disagree about, but helping them find ways to agree and cooperate and successfully execute multiple space flights. I was chief of payload safety. I was chief of robotics. I was chief of space station operations. I taught spacewalking. I taught rendezvous. I taught leadership. You know, trying to make sure that we as a unit, as the astronaut core of NASA, could execute things that nobody else in the world had ever done and that nobody else could do right now. And then once in a while, very seldom, I'd get assigned to a flight, I'd train for it, and then I'd go fly in space. And I took huge pride in every single launch, every single success we have in orbit. I still do because I can hear and see the echoes of my little piece of everybody's work even now. And that's what the life of an astronaut is a life of, of service, of decades of service, of putting someone else's priorities ahead of yourself and occasionally maybe getting to go do something right on the pointy end yourself. And it's a magnificent, interesting, challenging sort of, I'm not sure unparalleled, but it's definitely the, the life that I dreamed about. What you just said, I think that was the first aspect in reading your book where I was like, wow, the parallels are there. So you you spent over two decades as an astronaut, but only spent six months in space. And, you know, when, when we join the military, especially as officers, you know, for what at least what I do, like we join to lead. And then when you look back over my, my 20 year, you know, almost 20 year career, the times where I've actually been in a leadership position, I think is like less than four or something like that over the course of 20 years, but the rest of it has been spent supporting other people so they could do their jobs. And recently I was in an organization and one of the concepts that we talked about, what I just heard you say, was you determine your proximity to the X. You know, like you may not be the guy or gal kicking in the door on the objective, but you're back in the operations center, helping facilitate them being able to do that in some form or fashion. And so it's kind of how you see your role in that, no matter what it is, helping support that person on the ground. And I, I just, I heard you say that when you were talking about supporting other astronauts. If you watch the, uh, there's a lot of people know about space through media, of course. If you watch the movie Apollo 13, which is a pretty good accounting of what went wrong during that flight and how everybody dealt with it. But you talk about leadership. Actually, when you're watching that movie, don't just look at uh, how Ed Harris is portraying the, the real person who is Gene Krantz, because that's an obvious leadership position. He was chief of mission control. But have a look at the amount of leadership that is happening right through the whole organization. And leadership, you don't have to be out in front to be a leader. If you're having original thoughts, if you are helping to come up with ideas that then help turn, you know, which direction everybody's going or steering the ship or whatever, then you're part of the leadership. And most of my career as an astronaut, you know, I, I was never the administrator of NASA, but most of my roles, I, I could then see how they had helped spaceflight be more capable of the future. Even when I was uh, training to be the pilot of a Russian spaceship, on my third flight, I piloted a Russian rocket. I treated that the same. I helped write and change the procedures with which you fly a Soyuz just because, you know, and it's not like that was the first Soyuz flight, but I had stuff to add based on my own test pilot and spaceflight experience. And there's always an opportunity 
to take the initiative in order to change the course of how things are going to happen. And that's the definition of leadership. Doesn't matter what rank you are or what position you're holding. Are you taking action that is going to change the direction of things that are going to happen? That's leadership. All right, we're going to go ahead and end the podcast right now. It's perfect. (laughs) Neither one of us have messed up. You just had a great quote. I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> but but getting to that point, even talking about your time as as Capcom, you know, the, the one of the people behind the scenes supporting the person on the ground, you talked about how that experience helped you become a better astronaut. You talked about how you spend your entire career, a lot of it pretending. And sometimes like we joke around calling our own training pretending, you know, we're out in the woods on our home bases, pretending we're in a foreign country, fighting an enemy. And so how did you view training overall, like th- throughout your career? I mean, what was the mindset you approached it with? Well, prior to being an astronaut, I was a fighter pilot and a test pilot. So, of course, that's very much a life of training and preparation also. Something I learned really early on, Joe, is that all simulators are wrong. All training exercises are wrong. So you have to remember that as the person using them that there are limitations to this simulation that we're running today. But don't let that frustrate you. Just recognize that if you're going to start trying to draw useful conclusions from the exercise you've done here, make sure that they are as grounded in reality as possible. And don't let the simulator or the simulation uh, scenario, don't let that fool you into thinking you're now ready for the thing you're going to have to do. So there's that mindset I learned. But the other one was make your simulation as realistic as possible. And then while it's happening, get everybody to completely buy into it. Otherwise, you're just going through the motions and you are just pretending. But if you get people to be totally immersed in what's happening, like, you know, we've got a crew in the shuttle simulator, and then we've got another crew underwater who are doing a spacewalk training. And then we've got the crew in mission control and they're all talking to each other. If they're all just going, ah, eh, the crew's just over in building five. And yeah, the other guys are just in the NBL and you know, I'll be home you know, at four o'clock. Then no one's going to learn anything worthwhile. But as the problems are injected by the training team, if everybody is just totally bought in that this is for a higher purpose, this is going to teach us something. And we all got to be totally invested to wring every useful lesson we can out of this. Then your training is worth something. And that is the mindset I always try to take. Recognize there are limitations to the training and don't just believe everything. Also, get into it and really get everything possible from the lessons possible. Oh, and then the last piece, how do you codify the lessons learned? You can't just have the small little group of people who participated in that training exercise be the only people that benefit. You've got to somehow entrench those into rules or regs or procedures or or a guidebook. In my business, we call them flight rules. And we build flight rules. We have ever since 1961 when Al Shepard flew. And those flight rules, they are the blood-earned history of all of the lessons learned so that on the next flight, we have the greatest chance of success. You wrote in your book, um, you know, quick passage, you wrote, the ability to parse and solve complex problems rapidly with incomplete information in a hostile environment was not something any of us had been born with. But by this point, we all had it. We developed it on the job. And I I feel like you could take that passage and put it in a memoir of a combat leader, somebody who had to do the same exact things on the ground in, in combat. But I really appreciated in your book how you chalked it up to the development that you invested in yourself um, the development the space program put in you and all the, the reps that you had in, in the Sims. Oh, let's talk about the after action reviews real quick. I thought those were, were great as well about how you talked about the, you can't go in there with an ego, right? Yeah. And every single, like here's a day at one of the Sims, you get up about five at home, you know, get yourself ready. You get to work around six. You have a look at all of the hardware and how the simulator is going to run today and get your piece of it ready. And then you go into the pre-brief and you probably have an hour's pre-brief. These, this is how it's going to go today. These are the objectives. And there's, there's not just your ops team, but there's your training team who are going to inject all of the malfunctions and make everything go wrong today. And then you go get suited up for what's going to happen. And then you get, whether it's in the simulator or underwater or something, and then you get in and then the actual sim may run for six hours where all the things go wrong and, and you know everything's incremental. But then you get out, you get desuited, cleaned up, and then you sit down and debrief for a couple hours. 
at the end of that so that you go through the whole thing in sequence. It doesn't matter what your ego is. You weren't doing this to impress people. You were doing this to try and see whether your ideas were right or not, whether your skill set was high enough or not, whether everybody's understanding of what's going on was deep enough or not. And then at the end of it, you're going to find out that everybody had some shortcomings today. And you don't want to be personal about it. You want to call out the action, not the person. Like, hey, at 1822, I saw a switch thrown. And instead of going to the neutral position, it went all the way up to the top position and then back down to neutral again. And let's talk about what the ramifications of that are in general and were for the sim today. And then everybody knows it doesn't really matter who made the mistake. We're, you know, we're all trying to accomplish the same thing. And you all learn from that. And if it's serious enough, then maybe we'll put a guard on that switch and everybody get that way gets a chance to be honest and learn. If you're just in there, you know, first one to the chalkboard wins the debrief or it's a battle of egos, then it may be fun and it may be sort of ego stroking for some of the people, but it's not nearly as, as useful for everybody. I love that you actually, you spent like quite, I felt like there was like an entire chapter on that in the book while I was reading. Cause I, it made me think back to my younger, my younger self in the army where I was a person who had the ego in the after action review. I didn't really care about what was wrong. I just wanted to hear people say the things that, that I did well, I uh, could kind of get that, that ego stroking. But now as I've gotten older, like I just realized how valuable those exercises and the after action review process that we go through afterwards and just figuring out what's wrong, because you said it a few minutes ago, you said that you're not there to get a pat on the back. You're there to find out, you know, what's wrong and what are the things that we need to continue to do. So I, again, I, there's so many correlations uh, between, between your path and ours um, in this book that I, I didn't see until I picked it up. Yeah, the book also, oddly enough, it's been used by, uh, at Sam Houston State, they used it as the first year reader. Every student in the school had to read it, and they used it to set the curriculum of the entire university for their first years, including all of their projects and everything. So I never thought that would happen. And there have been several preachers that have used it as the foundation for a lot of sermon series as well, which I, I never occurred to me. But it's really delightful that the ideas that were really important in succeeding as an astronaut and the other things I've done in my life, they become sort of universal so that they can be applied to anybody who's just trying to improve themselves and, 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 you know, maybe accomplish the things they're dreaming of. Hey folks, it's Joe here. And I would like to thank our newest sponsor, my alma mater, the university of North Georgia, located in Dahlonega, Georgia, home of the mountain phase of Ranger school. If you were looking for an education, this is a place to go. They are a top-rated senior military college offering over 70 degrees, including critical languages, international affairs, strategic studies, and an award-winning cyber defense program. Their Corps of Cadets is an Army-only program with 24-7 leader development. They have consistently been ranked as our nation's number one Army ROTC program among senior military colleges, and this is the institution that I credit with preparing me to be an Army officer. So, if you want to learn more, go to their website at www.go.ung.edu forward slash Army One and learn more about the University of North Georgia, the Military College of Georgia. Now, back to the episode. Well, I'd like to, to switch a little bit now, switch gears to the actual execution, to the actual, you know, right before you go to launch, what that's like. Because one of the things that I learned also was I, I didn't realize you go into quarantine for a period of time. And so how important as an astronaut is that time before you go into space for mentally and emotionally preparing for that mission? Yeah, I think quarantine serves three major functions, Joe. Number one is... You don't want to take any sort of medical problem to space. You sure don't want to take COVID up to the space station or, you know, a flu or a skin rash or something that could be contagious and cause a real problem for the crew up there. So and you can't launch if you've got a head cold. If you can't clear your ears, then, you know, you're not going to be able to fly a, a rocket ship because the pressures change. So number one is medical. Number two is you need time to get your act together. You know, you've been studying and working and breakneck and, you know, you got to do your your will. You got to update your will and you got to get your financial stuff in order and how all the folks that are coming down to launch, you know, your parents and your great aunts and everybody and just the logistics of life 
that, you know, that's busy as you're coming up to something that that may kill you, uh, like a rocket launch. But you need to step away from that and actually focus on making the launch and the mission successful. And quarantine allows you a little grace period to focus on the on the real technical nature of what's going to happen. The third piece, though, is psychological, and, and that is. Uh, this is a different thing to be doing. And we're not just robots, you know, we are people and you've got to get yourself centered and psychologically ready. You're going to be separate from your family. You're going to do something that is wildly different than everybody else on earth is doing. It's going to give you opportunity to see and do things that are brand new in the human experience. And you could race right up to launch day and suddenly be just overwhelmed when you got to weightlessness. And so a little period of introspection, a little period of of, uh, peace before launch is is really helpful also. And that's why all of the astronaut corps around the world, no matter what country, they all have a quarantine before launch. It, It really helps serve all those purposes and it directly contributes to making us more successful. Well, going to your first mission, in the book, you talked about Jerry Ross. I think he was a mission commander for the the first one you went on. I like how you described like kind of your experience, you know, being the first time you're going into space versus what you were observing from him, who was a, uh, a veteran at this thing. So could you talk about kind of the difference in the mindset between the two of you? Something I learned quite a while ago, Joe, is that every single person you meet has done something you haven't. Everybody. Talk to a three-year-old. Even a three-year-old has life experiences that you haven't had. It's just normal human nature. My three-year-old so, tells me that every day. Yeah, I've had, I've had. So when you're going to do something hard, then that's a great time to learn from people who have had a, a more representative experience than you. And even if you got like five minutes or, or if you've got a, a week or, a, or whatever, in my case, I was on a crew. We were going to help build the Russian space station Mir. And I was lucky enough to get paired up with some experienced people. And one of them was a U.S. Air Force colonel named Jerry Ross. And he had, I think he'd already flown three times. He thought it was his fourth space flight or maybe even his fifth. Jerry went on to do more space shuttle flights than any other astronaut, seven, I think. And he'd already done spacewalks. And Jerry, super competent and quiet and unassuming. And he liked rebuilding old cars. And his wife, Karen, worked at the Johnson Space Center as well. And eventually his daughter went on to be one of the lead spacewalking engineers there. But Jerry was professional, calm, easygoing, but uh, super experienced. And so whenever I didn't know what to do, I'd have a look over and see what Jerry was doing. Because it's like, you know, I'm like a little dog looking at a big dog. I'm going, wow, what are we doing today, Spike? And one thing I noticed Jerry do, one, he wasn't the commander of the mission. He he was sort of there chief flight engineer, um, the commander, a guy named Ken Cameron. But Jerry would come into work an hour early and go into the commander's inbox and go through everything in the commander's inbox and take care of everything that really didn't need the commander's attention. And no one ever asked Jerry to do that. I don't think the commander even knew Jerry was doing that. But Jerry just realized, hey, I've, I'm not the commander. I got a little extra time. I'm not carrying all the responsibility here. And it sure would be nice if the commander's inbox was only an inch thick instead of four inches thick. And so let's just do that. Great. So Jerry was an excellent mentor. But just before launch, when I was sitting next to Jerry on the flight deck, and we were within inside a few minutes before the engines were about to light, I looked over and I saw that Jerry's right knee was moving up and down kind of fast, you know, like when you get excited. And I was thinking, holy cow, if Jerry is getting excited, this is a good time for me to be excited also. If, you know, even on his, this veteran is suddenly uh, feeling the moment, then uh, then it's okay for me to feel the moment too. But yeah, try and learn from the experience of others. You don't have to invent the world to be successful. And almost everything you ever do, someone will have done something similar to it in the past and uh, it'll improve your odds. Of succeeding when you give it a try. Such great advice. And I know the example uh, that Jerry showed by being just kind of a, a selfless leader on the team, you know, with something that, that you picked up. And, you know, just from the little bit of time I've spent with you here, um, I can tell that, you know, that's something that you've put into your identity as well as a leader as, as you came up. I've got to ask, like, what is it like to do a spacewalk? It's the coolest thing I've done in my whole life, Joe. <laughs> 
Your face I mean, is lighting up right now talking about uh, it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I was uh, an F-18 pilot when they were brand new. Uh, you know, I've landed in an F-18 on an aircraft carrier. I've done out of control work. You know, I was a downhill ski racer. I've done a lot of interesting things in my life. But to to put on that big, heavy uh, white suit, and it's really not a suit of clothes you do a spacewalk in. It's a one-person spaceship. That's what your suit of clothes is. It's a one-person, custom-fit, self-contained spaceship. And to put that on, depressurize the airlock so everything goes super quiet. And then you open up this hatch. And I was the lead spacewalker on my first walk. And pull yourself out of the ship, out into the three-dimensionality of the universe, like almost deliberately giving birth to yourself, like, you know, to be reborn into a whole new set of circumstances. And you're now you're out there. And you're you're in a bottomless eternity and a blackness. You can almost feel the, the darkness of the endless universe. But right next to you, separate from you, is this enormous, beautiful earth, silent, like a like a bulging kaleidoscope, just turning endlessly, mesmerizingly next to you. And you're there. All you can really hear is your own breathing and the occasional voice emission control. It is just an overwhelmingly beautiful and thought-provoking place to be. And you got a million things to do on a super tight timeline. You got to get to work. But it would have been like an insult if I didn't steal every moment I had just to soak up where I was, you know, physically, where I was mentally, where I was in time, where I was in my life, where we as a species are. You know, it's the most exclusive club, I think, in existence is the few people that have done spacewalks. I mean, it's it's celebrated on the back of Canada's $5 bill. That's how valuable my country views it. I got to unveil that bill uh, on orbit to help celebrate. So it's a big deal, but it is also so perspective building. I was outside for 15 hours total over two spacewalks, went around the world 10 times while I was outside. And at one point, we went through the northern light. Actually, it was the southern lights, but went through the aurora of the world while I was outside. You know, to be surfing on the aurora of the world. Yeah, that is awesome. With the greens and the reds glowing. You know, it's just going to take my whole life to explain to myself everything that I experienced during those 15 hours. Wow. That's, uh, man, that's awesome. You would think that it's, it's perfect. Everything's going to go well. You've been dreaming about this life your entire career about doing that spacewalk. But the first one didn't go well. Did it, I mean, like something happened, right? When you were uh, when you were doing that spacewalk that uh, wasn't planned. Well, things always go wrong, you know. Uh, uh, otherwise, you know, life wouldn't be life. Um, and in you said we got everything done on my first spacewalk, but uh, while I was working outside during my very first spacewalk, out building this big new uh, robot arm, the Canada arm on the space station, uh, suddenly something really nasty happened to my left eye. You know, like. Like when you get something really nasty in your eye and it becomes really important to you because eyes hurt and, and vision is important. And so my eyelids snapped shut um, and my eye started tearing badly, you know, trying to flush itself. But I'm inside a helmet, couldn't touch it, couldn't rub it, couldn't do anything. And without gravity, the tears don't drain down your face and, and through your, you know, through your nose. So you can't actually flush whatever that stuff is out of your eye. It's going to just stay there as this tear gets bigger and bigger. And so then the real question is, you know, if, if you're, uh, you know, when something bad happens to you, what are you going to do? And I thought, well, I could tell Houston, but what are they going to do? You know, they're going to just ask me, well, uh, can you continue or not? So I didn't tell anybody and I got another eye, you know, so what the heck. But then without gravity, the tear got bigger and bigger until it it uh, crossed the bridge of my nose and flowed into my other eye. And whatever it was that was contaminating my left eye now contaminated both. And both my eyes were essentially shut down, like not blind, but where if I opened my eyes, I couldn't see properly, you know, I could just see light and dark. So I was essentially struck blind while, um, while outside of my very first spacewalk. And that would be a lousy time to start preparing for things to go wrong or, uh, or to start thinking about, Hey, what if everything doesn't go perfectly? And I had spent years and years, you know, training and even we'd even practiced 
incapacitation. You know, what happens if you get a hole in your suit or you get the bends or or the suit loses its radio or there's all sorts of mechanical things that can go wrong. Um, so we we practiced crew rescue and all those things. And then I was outside with another guy, Scott Karazinski, but I called down to Houston and I knew it was going to be like rolling a flashbang in a mission control, you know, because <laughs> it was going to get everybody's attention when I tell them, hey, uh, I can't see. But what they had me do, and, you know, I knew everything about the suit, like you have to, to use it. And we had some theories as to what may be causing the problem. And some of them could be pretty bad. So they wanted me to flush the oxygen out of my suit. And that might also help the tears evaporate quicker. So I actually reached down to the left side of my neck where there's a little bolt, like like Frankenstein. And it's a little valve that you pivot 90 degrees and pop open. And it's a purge valve. And now the oxygen that is flowing into my helmet from my repress system starts leaking out or spraying out into the universe. Like I was like trying to repressurize the universe. And um, I was there blind on my first spacewalk, listening to as my oxygen is leaking into space and I got a finite amount. But in reality, every time you blink, you're blind for a second. You can't see, you don't die. You know, I just, okay. My eyes aren't working right now. So what? It's not the end of me. I can still breathe and think. And, and I got someone to help me anyway. And over time, that fresh oxygen pouring out of my reserve system did evaporate my tears enough that the contamination sort of crystallized around my eyes like a raccoon. And after about, I don't know, 20 minutes or something, I could see. I, I told Houston, hey, I can see, although I could just barely see. And I closed the valves because I wanted to save as much oxygen as I could. And because I had worked in mission control for five years and I knew the flight director real well and, and they trusted me and I trusted them and they they extended our spacewalk to almost eight hours, which is pretty physically crazy. And we got every single thing done. And it turned out to be something really simple. It was just the anti-fog, you know, but just take anti-fog sometime and drip it in your eye. You're, you know, it's not nice. Um, it's it's soap and oil. And we changed it after that. So it was a more, it, we actually use like no more tears shampoo, you know, which we should have used right from the start. But uh, a little thing can have big consequence, but the real measure of it is uh, how are you going to react and have you prepared for things to go wrong? And that day probably exemplified that more than any other day in my life. When I was reading, I was putting myself in your shoes because the way you describe events in the book, like you can almost say like, hey, I'm in there in that moment. And so I, one of the things that I was kind of like working through in my head is like, what would I do? Um, you know, it's my first spacewalk. I'm super excited. All of a sudden this starts happening. Would I start losing my mind because what's actually happening is completely different from my expectation for how that was going to go? And would I waste time doing that? So, I mean, is that... Is that kind of something that you've learned along the way? Is it people kind of get stuck on the what was supposed to happen or why did it happen? And then they, they end up losing precious time when they could be solving the problem, which is what you started to do. Things always go wrong. I don't even know why in the English language we say that's going wrong. That's just kind of how things go. You know, stuff goes off the rails in life. And you can spend your whole life kind of just hoping they don't. Or, or, you know, whistling past the graveyard or rubbing your little rabbit's foot or whatever gives you comfort. But things are still going to go wrong regardless. Someday you're going to be driving down the interstate and you'll be doing, you know, slightly over the speed limit. You're going 66 because you don't think you'll get a ticket for that. And one of your tires will blow up. But it's a pretty good chance if you drive through your whole life, you're going to be driving at speed and have an engine or have a tire go flat. What are you going to do? If you know that it's a high probability event in your life, then why don't when things aren't happening, when things when it's the quiet moment, why don't you take 15 minutes and figure out what you're supposed to do when that predictable of or someone having a heart attack or someone choking? What am I going to do when that when I'm presented with that high probability thing and use the time right now to actually get on the Internet and find out, OK, if I'm driving a front wheel drive car, rear wheel drive, all wheel drive, whatever, electric, mechanical, whatever, should I take my foot off the gas? Should I? Um, should I uh, break? Should I steer to the left? Should I steer to the right? The instructions are there. And then next time you're driving down the interstate and there's no other cars around, just give it a little practice. Say, okay, you know, don't have anybody in the car. And go, okay, in 10 seconds, I'm going to pretend that my right front wheel blows out. Three, two, one, go. Okay. And, and you'll probably mess up your reactions because it's weird for you. But then do it again and then do it again. And once you've done it a half dozen times, like, okay, 
when that happens, this is my new muscle memory. This is what I'm going to do. And it's not the end of the world. I'm good. Okay. Tick. I got that thing under my belt. And that's how I approach everything in life. You know, I, I don't get ready for things to go well. You know, what's, that's just birthday cakes and, and kittens. And stuff, <laughs> you know, I anticipate the parts where things are not going to go well and get ready for them. And it doesn't make you a worrier. If anything, I think it decreases your stress because you got a plan and you got some skills. And it's like, oh, hey, that, I got blinded during my first spacewalk. So I got the other things I can do. And so to me, I, I, it's, it's something I gathered over all the years growing up on a farm and then being in the military and being an astronaut. But I think it's sort of fundamentally a better way to just go through life because then you don't end up stressed and struggling all the time. Yeah, it, it reminded me too that, um, like, I was thinking about w- while you were talking, I was thinking about going back to, um, you know, some of the things that you said going back to when COVID hit. I remember at first, I just kind of wanted to look out the window every day to see if COVID had left the driveway and then we could <laughs> just go back to normal. But then I was like, well, what if it doesn't go away in a couple of weeks? What if it doesn't go away in a couple of months? And so I use that time, like, we built a, a gym in our garage. We, um, we're like, hey, like let's let's take advantage of marriage counseling right now while I'm not working as much, and like I wanna I wanna improve my writing, so I'm gonna I'm gonna write more, I'm gonna read more, and then you know now I look back, we've got this gym in the garage, and we've had all these great family workouts, you know the marriage is stronger because we took advantage of the marriage counseling, and then I just had a book come out a couple weeks ago. Congratulations, um, that's great. Yeah, thank you. That I worked on during the COVID time, and so. That experience taught me that like, if I'm just waiting for everything else to change and not taking advantage of, of the time, or if I start focusing on what is instead of what it could be, that I could actually start making progress, you know? Yeah. And, and there's a lot of people, I think it's sort of human nature to fall in love with your old life. Like, hey, there was that one week period when everything was great, you know, and, and I was really counting on the rest of my life to be like that. And it's sort of like you said earlier, uh, if, if you spend your life looking backwards, you're going to keep bumping into your actual future. <laughs> and, and so take pleasure and pride and, and delight in the things that have happened, but you can't change any of those. Your life is actually what's going on right now and what's going to happen next. And that's where you got you know, a real opportunity to improve stuff or change stuff. So, so I try and focus on, on the here and now and the, and the soon upcoming uh, much more so than I try and revel in the past or worry about stuff that's way, way in the future and not ever just be in love with my old life because you, you can't do anything about it anyway. Because next thing you know, you've written a novel about Apollo murders. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wrote a book during the pandemic also. And uh, it just actually, it was in the New York Times and it's a, it's a bestseller in, uh, gosh, a whole bunch of countries. Yeah, yesterday it was announced the number one book in Canada. So that's, oh, that's congratulations. a huge, huge, delightful thing. Yeah, it's a thriller fiction, alternative history fiction set during the Cold War uh, in the spring of, of 73 called The Apollo Murders. And and I'm just delighted with the worldwide reaction to it and, and, uh, and having created something out of my own experience that helps people maybe feel spaceflight even more viscerally and, and get a sense for what it's actually like. And also have a, you know, a really fun romp through, uh, through the realities of stuff was happening back then, but with my own little twisted plot snuck into all of it, the Apollo murders. And I've learned a lot writing a, a thriller fiction novel for the first time. Do you have any more that you're now that you've got oh, that one? Or you? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, even uh, you know, writing a book is a big process. It took me about a year to write the book, but as soon as I finished this one, and we just got into sort of you know the publishing and marketing side of this one, I started working on the next in the series because I found I really enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed the process of learning that comes with writing a book and discovery and and improving my own skills and and you know, it's just so much fun to create something that then other folks, you know, can, can share, you know? And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm working on the next one. I've done a bunch of research trips. I've written about 10,000 words of the next book and um, it's due to come out. I think now the publishers have decided the spring of 23. So I've, I've got several months here to, to write the next book, but yeah, what of all the things you can do in life, you know, it's, it's always good to be turning over rocks and finding new things and, uh, and then developing those skills and, you know, seeing what's going to come next. I love that. And that that's what, 
you know, I, I have, um, you know, from the website, I have a monthly email where I recommend three to five books every month, you know, with a short essay on why reading is important for us. And then I do a weekly, I'll take a quote from a book, like I'll take one from yours and just kind of think about it, connect it to other ideas and write about 600 words. But just that process of creating, like, I love it. I don't care if five people read it, you know, but it's, uh, it's way more than that. Uh, Chris, I have to let ego, <laughs> ego slip in there. But I just love that process because it's like I get to learn every single week as I go through this. And so congratulations to you on the Apollo murders. Yeah, thanks very much. And we're, you know, and James Cameron loves it, uh, which is a pretty delightful thing. Uh, he actually read it early. He was one of my early readers. He's the movie director, producer, uh, editor. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, James Cameron. And he actually, when he read it early, he came back and said, hey, I'd love to make this in a movie, but I'm, I'm super busy doing the Avatar sequels right now. So get somebody else to make it into a movie. But here's a couple little plot tweaks you might like. You know, you might think about be a little kinder to the reader. So it's pretty cool that Jim Cameron you know, help tweak the book just a tiny bit to make it a little better for the reader. And, you know, gosh, to try and learn from other people is is such a gift and such a delight. And and yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to to creating the next book and, and learning. I, I the all morning before I was talking to you, I, I was deeply into one of the technical pieces that I need to understand for the next book. I've just spent the whole morning as a student, you know, and and my head's just kind of reeling with what that's going to do to my plot now and how it's all going to fit together. And it's the creative process which oh. which I just love. So again, I wish I wish everybody could see this interview right now. Because uh, like the same thing, the creative process, just the fact that you're talking about satisfying curiosity and learning, you just had the same facial expressions you did as talking about spacewalks. And it's, it's the same thing for me. Like I love reading. I love learning about stuff. I love picking up a book that's 2000 years old and going through and just learning something that I didn't know before and being like, oh, wow, that's the same thing that we're doing today. And I just get super excited and and, uh, you know, unfortunately or unfortunately, it's usually my wife that has to hear this new insight that I had just about every day. It's good to go through life with with somebody else, I think. Uh, not, it's not everybody's nature, but I count myself very lucky. Your wife's Amanda, my wife's Helena. She and I met in high school where we've been together a ridiculous length of time, 46 years. And, uh, and we don't always agree on stuff. We have a very different set of priorities. But what we've always done is support each other's dreams to every extent we possibly can and try and make room in the relationship for them to be pursuing the things that are important to them. Because giving up on your dreams does not come for free. And if you force your partner to give up on something that's important to them, you know, that's not consequence free. So do everything you can try and recognize that they're different than you. Uh, but the two of you together could do stuff that no individual could do. And it's been imperfect, but it's been wonderful. And and we're still together now, 46 years on. So so both of us think, hey, this might, this might take, who knows, this, <laughs> this might end up being a successful relationship someday. Yeah, it, but you know, I am so grateful for that extra balance of, of listening to me and me listening to her at, at all of these different stages of life. One of the things that I appreciated about your book is that you you give us a glimpse too in, in the, the life of the family of the astronauts. And that's another parallel that I thought was very close to ours. And you shared a quote, uh, you said that uh, our dreams become their nightmares. And so how did your career as a pilot affect your family? It was a big ask of my wife. Uh, and, and once we had kids uh, and they started, you know, getting a little older, uh, a big ask of our kids as well. Um, a big ask for a lot of reasons. Number one is my wife graduated university before I did, and she had a really promising career going. And then the Canadian Air Force said, we're going to post you to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Cold Lake, Alberta. You know, th those are <laughs> those don't sound like, uh, you know, national capitals either place. Uh, and then eventually northern Quebec, because that's where our military bases are in the remote areas. And and so my, my wife's career was derailed just by geography. You know, there was no internet or anything. So either she could find local work or she wasn't going to find work at all. And so right at the time of our marriage, first big compromise is you're going to have to stop your career until we get through this phase of, of my military career. So a huge ask. 
And then we thought, well, shoot, we're in these remote places and we're going to have kids. So let's just have the kids now early. We were only in our early mid twenties just because she's not going to be able to work anyway. So another big ask now she's living, we were living in Northern Quebec. My wife doesn't speak French very well and, and, you know, raising kids and trying to do everything in, in a different language. And, and with me super busy trying to build my own career, but with the eternal promise of, Hey, things will get easier later. Uh, we'll have more money, hopefully later in life. And uh, we'll be able to get back to prioritizing your agenda And it took a while. It was cooperative. I did what I could while still trying to be successful as a fighter pilot and then a test pilot and then an astronaut. And now at this stage of life with our kids grown, uh, my wife, she's gone on to do several things. She helped run a couple businesses. She went back to school and became a professional chef and worked for years in Houston uh, as as a senior professional chef. And now she's back in school again, doing her, I think it's her fourth university degree because she she's just interested in it. And this is a good chance. She didn't get a chance earlier. And so this one's in fine arts and design and ceramics and stuff. And I just love it. I, I applaud it. I think it's great. And she's so busy with it and so mentally engaged and learning and developing and improving herself. And so it's it's almost like two draw horses in front of a wagon. And for a while, one of them you know has to do a lot of the pulling while the other one gets a bit of a ride. But hopefully you can take some turns and let the other one have a chance to have a rest or pursue the things they want to. And it's never going to be equal or guaranteed, but to me, it's still a preferable way to go through life. And I think Helena would agree. Yeah. Yeah. What what did you learn about gratitude for those around you? Because you're right. Like, I mean, you know, our families to do what we do have to sacrifice so much to support us. So like, how, how did you approach gratitude? Well, your kids are what, like 11 and two or something like that. So, you know, your decisions now have a big impact, especially for the 11 year old. What's school? Are they going to get ripped out of school? You're getting posted, I think, somewhere else uh, overseas. You know, what's that going to mean for them? And they're going to get opportunities they wouldn't get otherwise. But that's the long term. You know, in the short term, it's going to be hard for them to see uh, how this disruption is is ever going to be a good thing. I think at the personal level, I have been intensely grateful to my parents and to my to my spouse, to my wife, and to the whole structure that's allowed me to so much of my life to pursue the things that I wanted to pursue. But with gratitude comes obligation, right? With privilege comes responsibility. And one way to express it is just to be grateful. Obviously, how you express that, how you actually try and take the time to enable the other people to do the things that they're dreaming of. That's the ultimate expression of gratitude, I think. And I'm hugely imperfect. And obviously there are big examples in my life where I've blown it, but I try and I'm still now, even though my kids are in their thirties, you know, looking for opportunities to uh, express my gratitude to them, to try and enable them, to help them do the things that are important. And to me, it's forever a work in progress. It's always gonna be imperfect. Um, recognize you get a new chance each day to do better than you did yesterday and uh, and keep giving it a hack. And, you know, I'm 62. So far, so good, but I can always do better. This is great too. You talked about in the book, you talk about some of the things that you did over the course of your career, which I thought were amazing to kind of mitigate the effects of you being gone all the time and, and, and other sacrifices. Could you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. As an astronaut, you lead a public life. And especially if you're a Canadian astronaut, there are very few of us. So you have a lot of demands to be the public face of the space agency. The NASA astronauts do that to some degree. So they would ask me to travel probably three weekends a month where I would go somewhere and, you know, speak to schools. I've spoken, I don't know, in a thousand schools and probably not a thousand, but it feels like it. And businesses and rotaries and, you know, government and the United Nations that I've spoken all over the place. I would try and uh, take one child on a trip on their own at least once a year each so that they could come and see what dad was doing while he was away. And then, then they'd get to come and see another place and have a special thing in their life too. And then when I would come home from a trip, they'd realize, oh, it isn't all just joy and laughter. You know, it's mostly he's just out there working. And then for my wife, I thought the biggest gift I can give her, you know, on a vacation, if all of us pile into the station wagon and all go somewhere, then she's still in the same role. The biggest gift I thought I could give her was to take our three kids myself and go away for 10 days 
and so the vacation every year or more often if I could swing it I took a vacation with myself and the kids and my wife she would call those the one dish times where there was only one dish in the sink and she could actually you know have some peace and quiet and self direction and I think that was important trying to get involved with the kids to whatever I could I coached all their sports teams and you know tried to free my wife up try and take turns where I could and then also try and include them in my work bring them into work let them see what i'm up to actually listen to them and hear you know what their observations and suggestions are and none of that was perfect and they would all have their own version of it of course but those were my objectives and they've all grown up to be interesting capable adults so uh and it's fun to know them now as they're all in their 30s it's fun to know them as as fully grown up people now having seen them their whole lives yeah, it was um as I look back on the times that that I have been home, you know, one of the things that I've tried to get better about doing is is being present myself and you know, creating creating experiences for my kids, for my wife that we can do so that you know, when when I am gone or when work's getting super crazy that you know, I can kind of put money in the bank so to speak. Every night before bed, Joe, every night that I was home before bed, uh, each of them, I read each of them a story and I'm a musician as well and a songwriter and played in bands my whole life. And uh, every night before bed, each of them got a song and it was a whole song and it wasn't necessarily just a lullaby. It's whatever song the band was working on right now. So, you know, I'd be going through a, a whatever phase. This is a Neil Young phase. So tonight everybody's getting Neil Young songs, but it doesn't matter. It's the sitting on the foot of their bed, you know, when they're growing and after they've they've heard and read the long book story with you. And now you play them one complete piece of art, you know, a complete song. And it's so delightful for me now to listen to the, uh, the song lists that my kids value. Cause a lot of it is based on those songs that I shared with them, you know, when, when they were growing up and those little moments, they only take a few minutes during the day. And some days you can't get to them, but they become kind of bedrock and formative for everybody. And also terrific memories. I try to read to my son every night before we go to sleep. And it, you know, it started with like Good Night Moon, The Cat in the Hat. But then this past year, we just finished uh, two graphic novels, The Odyssey and The Iliad. And it was wow. just, <laughs> it was cool because to hear him pick up on the themes of the story. And, uh, you know, he's, like I said, he's 11 now. But just to be able to share that with him, um, I don't know if it's going to serve him in life. But at least we have those memories together. And then the thing that I've talked a little bit about on the podcast too, is we do a weekly family workout every Saturday or Sunday in the morning. You know, my daughter and my son are both there. A lot of times my son's complaining, but, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it's a memory that, that like we willed into existence to happen. Um, it's something that we, we were being deliberate about. So that's kind of like our, our thing. So maybe if, you know, I don't know if it'll be my, my kid's uh, playlist, but maybe my kid will be at the CrossFit Games. Uh, 15 years from now, and I can say that that I help uh, invest in that. My objective was always to try and hopefully be a useful voice in their head when I wasn't there. That's sort of what I was always thinking about, and you know, so much of that comes from example too, right? And so, and, and I, I'm I'm not a perfect parent, and my kids could hold up a hundred examples of where I did stupid stuff. But you know, you, you're you're only you're you're only as good as you can be. But that doesn't mean you sh you shouldn't. Uh, try and do better on the next next go around. Same here, Chris. I could uh, We could have a whole nother hour long podcast, probably about all the things that we've messed up as, uh, as spouses <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and parents, but we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. I, I learned, first of all, I've learned a lot from this book and I'd like to upfront apologize to the people I work with and my family members for talking about astronaut stuff nonstop for the last week as I flew through it. It'll probably only last another week or so. But once you hear this hear this episode, you'll you'll understand why. Chris, this was awesome. Like not only learning about the space program for you and, and what it takes, but also just kind of how to live life as a person of action who, you know, not only has a career but but also has a family as well. Yeah, well I'm glad you enjoyed an astronaut's guide to life on Earth, because that's truly why I wrote the book. You know, I didn't call it my life or something. I called it an astronaut's guide to life on earth. And that's exactly what it is. You know, did I learn anything useful in all this time that might be helpful to other people? And so it just, uh, it just, 
is so pleasurable for me when someone reads the book and comes back sort of excited and says, hey, I hadn't really looked at it that way. And this is going to be helpful to me in the future. And I'm going to remember what you said when I'm making my decisions in this area. It's like, yeah, that was worth all the work, you know, to bring that book into existence. But you've got to read the Apollo murders next, Joe. You're going to love the story and you'll learn a bunch of stuff, but it's 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 thriller fiction. So so uh, I'm sure you got a full reading list, but uh, but I know that if you get a chance, you're going to love reading the Apollo murders too. No, I'm 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 sold. I'm sold on it. I'm, that is going to be next on my reading list. And one final point too, talking about bringing family into this. You know, the other day I was I was bringing my my son home and uh you know in preparation for this interview I was listening to the uh, Jordan Harbinger show that you had gone on and done an interview there and it was something you said you said uh like there's not any problem that we can't no. make worse yeah there is no situation or no problem so bad that you can't make it worse yeah so I hit pause on the interview and we spent the rest of the car ride talking about different ways that when we encounter problems that uh that we can just make it worse by either our outburst or uh, or not being prepared for the situation we're going to face. So I just have to thank you there for uh, for giving me. Didn't even know you're doing it. You're giving me a teaching moment with my own son. That's a delight, and it's a mantra for astronauts. There is no problem so bad you can't make it worse. And the only reason, only way you can avoid that, hopefully, is through preparation in advance and understanding the link between uh, action and consequence, and and then with a better informed position, being deliberate into the things you do in your life. It works in a simulator, but sometimes it even works while you're, while you're driving with your son. Oh, okay. There, that's where we're going to end it at. That's all right. The, great. <laughs> that's the place where we're going to end this interview. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Again, this was, this was extremely enlightening. I really appreciate getting to know you and I promise you that the next book I am going to read will be the Apollo murders. Great. I wish you a uh, great, success with your family, uh, holidays and beyond, and the responsibility that you're taking on next uh, and the leadership with all those people counting on you to make good decisions. Something I did before my third space, but my dad was old and he couldn't come all the way to Russia. But what he told me was, trust yourself. You have worked your whole life to try and gather the skills to now go command a spaceship. And there's going to be lots of times you can't ask anybody else. So seek counsel, do what you can, but fundamentally, trust yourself now. And so if my dad's words are any use to you, as you take that leadership position, trust yourself. I look forward to meet you in person someday in the future here, Joe. Uh, Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. Shoot me down soon